Good morning, everyone. Uh, the Bible reading for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 to 30. This is a continuation from last week. So we're going to read the last part of verse 18, starting from yes. Philippians 1, verse 18 to 30. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner of worthy of the gospel of Christ then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw ahead, and now here that I still have. Thank you, Maker. Morning, folks. Quick service announcement. Anyone lost a little bracelet? It's too small for my wrist. I couldn't... I mean, I think it's my colour, but if you've lost that, come and see me afterwards. Uh, if you are new or, well, or visiting, a special welcome to you. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's always lovely uh, during holiday times uh, to have some people visiting, family visiting. Special welcome again to the Dafter and Owers family. Is that right? Yes, got it. Um, it's always lovely to have people visiting along. Uh, if you are new or visiting, um, we are in a new sermon series. Uh, this is the second week of our series on the uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians church, the, the, the church in Philippi that he planted about 10 years previous to writing this particular letter. You'll notice actually on the screen the sermon series that we've sort of titled it Contented in Christ. And I hope as you look at that picture there, it's sort of, it's a bit jarring. That image doesn't quite seem to match the title, does it? Contented in Christ, hands in a jail cell. What's going on here? I, I'm assuming or I'm hoping that you're feeling a little jarred by that and that's the purpose in the, and the point, in fact. Because I think when we hear contented, we think more of our images of hammocks and beaches or at this particular time of the year, we think more of you know, open fireplaces, bearskin rugs and warm cups of cocoa when we think contented. So why would we deliberately put a picture of hands in jail? 
And you'll know if you've, if you've read Philippians before, in fact, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church in jail. And he writes this theme of contentedness comes up time and time again. And I want us to keep pushing into this. In fact, what does even contented mean? You will notice if you've ever looked at the dictionary. In fact, here's a dictionary definition. This is what content means. Contented means feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status or situations. Everyone agree with that? That's a pretty standard definition of contentedness. That's being at peace with what you've got, who you are or where you are. That is what situation you're in. That's what contented means. Now, I think that's true, but I think we've got an issue or a difficulty as people who are living in the Western world, people who are saturated by a culture that is both relatively wealthy by comparison, where we have relative ease, and this onslaught of individualistic thinking is so ingrained in us that while we value the concept of contentedness, that is, we want to feel and show satisfaction with our possessions and our status and our circumstances. We want to be content, but the problem is we also want to choose or decide the level at where contentment should kick in. Let me explain that a little further. Let me explain that a little bit more because I do think we all desire to be contentment, uh, to be content. But it's not the desire for contentment where we are. It's the desire to decide where contentment ought be. In fact, if I was to write a a world's definition of contentedness, I would write something like this. The worldly definition of contented. A state of satisfaction when a personally determined level of possessions, status or circumstances are obtained. Do you understand the difference between those two? It's quite a, a marked difference, isn't it? In practice, this sounds like, and in fact, it's the first point on your sermon outline, if you got one when you came in, it sounds like, I'll be content when dot, 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 you fill in the blank. I'll be content slash happy when I have a house, a car, a spouse, a child, that job, this qualification, this much money in the bank, this many holidays during the, whatever, (laughs) Our problem in the West is that we want contentment, but we want it at the level of our own choosing. That's when we'll feel satisfied and content. And, and actually the problem as, uh, as Christians, people who are coming along to sit under God's word, there is a Christianized version of this, or I want to say a pseudo-Christian version of that definition of contentedness. It's not so crass as to be material-based, at least at first it's not. Because if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you'll know that true contentment only comes through the gospel of Christ. Not through stuff, but through the gospel. But the problem with the Christianized version is it still wants to reserve the right to decide how much gospel we actually need. Oh yeah, We want gospel contentment, but we want to dictate the serving size. Kind of like ordering hot chips at the fish and chip shop. <laughs> I'll have a minimum of gospel, please. In fact, I picked that line up off a, black, off a bloke named Don Carson. He was explaining this. In fact, it was a book he had written about uh, the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. In fact, let me read to you his little quote. This is what he says. He says, this is the Christianized, domesticated type version of the gospel. He says, I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. 
I certainly don't want much, so much that I start loving my enemies or cherish self-denial or contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I'd like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. It's a bit like ordering a minimum chips at the fish and chip shop. This is how much I'd be satisfied with. This is where I want to find my contentment. Just this much and no much, no more, thank you. And as Carson goes on to note, none of us, none of us are so crass or so crude to express our desire like this, but I wonder if all of us have not felt the temptation to aim at a domesticated version of the gospel at some point in life. Just enough to save me from God's wrath, just enough to get me over the line in the end, but not so much that it makes me too different from everyone else around me. It's the means to an end gospel. I know the gospel should be centered, but I really just want it there to achieve these particular ends and goals. Do you feel that temptation, folks? Do you feel that pull? If you do, you're not alone. But what I'm convinced that we read here in Paul is that genuine Christian contentment is not found in either of those first two definitions. No, genuine Christian contentment is God-given satisfaction with anything and everything because you know and trust it's from God's hand. In fact, let me put it this way. Let me, I'll, I'll, I'll whack another definition up there. Can you flick that one up for us, please? Here's how I'd put it. I was reading a chap, uh, an old Puritan writer, Jerem, Jeremiah Burroughs. He had this really thick, rich, very dense... Uh, definition of contentment. I liked it very much and I tried to sort of unpick it a little bit. But he talks about Christian contentment being a state of spirit-fueled satisfaction which submits to and delights in God's fatherly wisdom in every season of life, trusting that God himself is in control. And this is the kind of spiritual contentment and satisfaction that I'm convinced we hear at the core of Paul's letter to the Philippians. In fact, piggybacking straight on from last week, it's because of this contentment in Christ that Paul has that he's able to put, like we saw, the gospel at the centre of his aspirations. In fact, that was one of our major points last week. If you weren't here, we looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 1 and we noticed that Paul, for Paul, the gospel was central to his relationships, which was central to his prayers, it was central to his aspirations of life. And piggybacking straight on the, on the back of that, how serious was Paul about this? How serious was Paul about the gospel as central to his life's ambitions? How serious? Literally, deadly serious. Did you notice that as Maker read it for us? In fact, look at verse 20 and see it there with me. As he continues his letter, this is how it starts this week. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. (laughs) Do you hear the seriousness of that statement? Do you hear how fair Dinkum Paul is about the gospel as central to his life's ambitions? He's so committed to making the gospel and the honour of Jesus central to his aspirations. He's prepared to live or die 
whichever would serve Christ and the gospel best. It's not a small statement he makes here, friends. That's not just a passing comment. In fact, he fleshes this out even more in verse 21. Look at, let's look at verse 21 carefully. We've heard it a few times already, and I really want us to slow down and look at this again because there's important things to note. Look at verse 21. Paul says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, we've heard that several times already this service. You'll have heard that if you've been around Christian circles, no doubt, time and time again. But I want you to stop and look closely at this statement. What is Paul saying? What does he mean? This is where the, 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 uh, the difference between doing three chapters of Daniel and doing 18 or 12 verses of Philippians. I want to stop and sort of go word by word for a second here because there's some real significance. Because I fear that we read these sorts of verses in the Bible often way too quickly. We know they're profound. It gets, it's got the sense of profundity, hasn't it? We know it's an important truth, but we just read over it quickly and very easily fail to realize the full impact of these kinds of statements. So let's slow down. First, word, well, the first two words I want you to focus on to begin with. What's the first two words of that, of that verse? For me. For me. In other words, Paul is saying something here deeply personal. He's not making some sort of purely theoretical statement or idea. It's not about a belief out there in the ether. He's saying something that is fundamental and core to his identity and his personhood. For me. Look at the next two words. What did he say? For me to live. That is, it's not now just something personal. It's not something personally held or privately practiced. No, it's something that is highly practical. Something that is out there. Something that can and ought be evidenced in life. Something that others ought be able to see and identify in real space and time. For me, to live, next two words, is Christ. What does it mean? Well, of course, it's got to be in the context of for me to live is Christ. It means that Paul, personally, the outworkings of his whole life, of every practical thing he said and thought and did, he had Christ's glory at the centre. He had the gospel as his goal. Now think about this. It means that when Paul sat down to eat breakfast, whether he was doing his hair, or whether he was being held in prison, Christ was the object of his motivations and desires. It's a really strange thing to say, isn't it? I mean, how I can hear sort of the cogs whirring and go, how do you eat breakfast to the glory of Jesus? How do you do your hair with the gospel central? Do you, you hear me? It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? It's a right question to ask, and I want to say you absolutely can and ought and must. To eat breakfast with thanks to God and with the prayer and intention of using the energy that that food gives you to honour Jesus with your actions is to eat breakfast to the glory of Jesus. It's to have the gospel centre. And to do your hair or to pick out your outfit for the day, conscious of not wanting to cause offence or stumbling to either a non-believer or a Christian brother or sister, 
That's to do your hair or choose your outfit to the glory of God, to have the gospel central. And to sit in a jail cell and use your voice not to complain about your circumstances or join in with the casual cursing and swearing of the, of the jailhouse, but to use your voice to share the gospel of Jesus is to do jail time to the glory of Jesus, to have the gospel essential. Friends, the opportunities to illustrate this, I hope you pick it up, they're endless and they're obvious and you can make anything out of this. Everything that Paul said, did or thought, he was conscious and desirous to honour Jesus first. To live is Christ, is what he says. For me, to live is Christ. That's what he means. And then he adds to that, because should Paul's desire to honour Jesus, should that mean he lives his life in such a way that he caused his death? Giddy up! Gain! That's gain? That doesn't make sense in the natural way of thinking. How can Paul say this? How can Paul say, to live is Christ, okay, I've got that, to live is to make Christ central, and if I die, level up. What? The only way that can make sense is because Jesus was and is Paul's treasure. The only way that that can make sense is because of what Jesus has done to death in such a way that means focusing on Christ means it is gain. See, in life and death, Jesus was and is the thing to focus on for Paul. Christ is the treasure at the centre. He's not the means to the end. Jesus is the end himself. Now, let me explain that a little bit further. I point this out because, as I said, seeing dying as gain or death as gain or benefit or better, it's just not the way people think. It's not naturally the way that anyone thinks. I think Christians were included in that often. Death isn't a win, it's a loss, isn't it? Death is horrible. Death stinks. It sucks. I don't like it. Anyone like it? It's terrible. And that's true. There's something true about that. Death is horrible. And yet because of Jesus and because of the death of death and the death of Christ, now death has taken on a new meaning and significance for those who are in Christ. Death has a new meaning and significance for Christians and it's something we ought not miss, friends. Because I think if you're a Christian here and you've read these words before, you've read Paul say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You've said amen and then functionally I fear that we live and act more like it reads, to live is gain and to die is Christ. Do you understand the difference between the two? I think the old natural way of thinking kicks back in and we think to live is gain and to die is Christ. Do you realise the problem if you make that mistake? To think that to live is gain, that life is the real treasure. If you make that wrong step, then you'll, you'll find out, we'll find ourselves protecting our way of life. We'll find ourselves taking fewer risks for the gospel. We'll find ourselves both collectively and individually becoming very inward focused, pouring our time and our effort into an existence that lasts at best for a hundred years, at best. All your time and effort, all that time worrying about how I live 80 years of my life at the expense of considering an eternity and not just my eternity, 
but the eternity of others. All that time and effort on something that lasts 80 years at the expense of pouring out our lives for the good of others in eternity. It doesn't make sense, does it? When you put it like that, it, it, that's crazy talk. And worse than that, my fear of to live is gain and to die is Christ is that we actually start treating Jesus like he's some sort of consolation prize. He's the runner-up prize. He's the, yeah, the thing you get for when you inevitably and unfortunately have to die. Well, I was supposed to Christ. Yeah, that's all right then. No, that's not what Paul's saying. It's not even close to what Paul is saying. To live, Paul says, is to recognize Christ is the treasure of life. And his honor is to be pursued for your own good and the good of everyone around you. Now, think about that for a second. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a really stark thing to think about. To live is Christ. What Paul's saying here, what God's word is, is, is pushing upon you here, is that there is no better way to live than have Christ as central. There's no better way for you to live personally. There's no better way for you to live in terms of loving others than to put Christ first. To live is Christ. His honour is central. And even if that pursuit, even if that costs your life, that's when you really gain. In Christ, it's actually when you get to see, well, through death, unencumbered, the sinful stupidity, that sin that so easily entangles me, stripped away, seeing him and being with him in a perfected state, a relationship that lasts for eternity, that's the booby prize? I don't think so. You see, when you're in Christ and when you understand who he is, when you're a Christian, death is not the horror to be avoided at all cost, but it's the inevitable reality through which now we will even benefit because of Christ. Now, I want you to see I'm not, trying to, I'm not, stretching, I'm not stretching this too far. In fact, this is absolutely coming from Paul. In fact, look at how he puts it there. Look at Philippians 1. Look at verses 22 and 23. Because Paul will start to describe here a tension that he feels, a tension about the desire to live or to die. In fact, look at how he expresses this. Look at this tension in verse 22. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. He's torn? What are the options he's torn between? I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Do you hear the tension that he's, that he's having? Do you hear what he's torn between? He is literally feeling the tension. He's torn between the desire to live and the desire to die. And how does he resolve this tension? How does he decide? Is he actually actively making a choice here? I mean, in sort of brackets, I want to ask, is he contemplating suicide? Is that what he's suggesting? Almost sounds like that, doesn't it? I mean, he explicitly states to depart and be with Christ would be better by far. Sounds like he's considering this as a live option. But if you're a Christian, and I hope you agree with what Paul is driving at here, the desire to be with Christ is better by far. Well, let me do a little bit of a vox pop. I mean, hands up here if you think heaven in the very presence of God in an eternal perfected state would be a downgrade from your present existence. Anyone? I didn't think so. 
I can appreciate Paul's desire to depart and be with Christ. I share it. I hope you do too. But it doesn't mean that he's trying to bring that about by his own hand or by his own choosing. No, no. Paul speaks of the desire to be with Jesus, but not the intention to try to force that reunion early through suicide or some sort of kamikaze act. Not at all. Now, instead, look at how he resolves this tension. Look again at verse 23. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress. And joy in the faith. Do you realize the bits that I was emphasizing there? Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the radical nature of the way that Paul is thinking? Again, radical because it's so contrary to the way that we naturally think. When you're making decisions, what's the question that you preference first? What's the first thing you often ask by way of nature? We often say, okay, these are decisions I've got to make. What's best for me? It's a very natural question to ask, isn't it? Yet it's not the question that Paul is asking here. In fact, Paul has been so radically transformed by Christ, he is so in tune now with God's Spirit, that he's utterly convinced that the gospel is the center of everything, so that even as he's sitting in a prison, he's not in a penthouse, folks, he's in a prison. And he's not fixated on the question of, what's best for me? No, he's saying, what's best for you? What's best for others? And that's how he resolves this tension of his desire to live or his desire to die. He determines not to focus on what is best for him personally, but rather what is best for others. That's radical thinking, folks. And so because he is convinced of this, he is content even to sit in prison, but not to sit in prison twiddling his thumbs because Jesus is his treasure and it is the treasure that he can share with others as he's there. And friends, this is what I want to also point out. This is the amazing thing when you realise that Jesus himself is the treasure of Christian people. It is the treasure of, he is the treasure of Christianity. In fact, when I think about treasures, Jesus is the only treasure I can think of that is increased the more you share it. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not sure we've got any prospectors here, any people get their metal detectors out on the beach on a sunny summer's day and go beep, 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 you know, no, no, no. Let's suppose that you stumble across some pirate gold or an ancient long-lost artefact, some sort of treasure, and you decide to share it. What happens as you share the treasure? Well, personally, it means you get less of the treasure, Yes. <laughs> That's how treasures work. The more people you share it with, the less you personally get to own and enjoy. Isn't that how treasure works? It's a game of maths. It's a division thing. It's like that with every treasure I can think of, but it's not so with the treasure of Jesus in the gospel. The gospel treasure that is Jesus, and because of him, the invitation to life eternal with him, of forgiveness and friendship with God through him, that treasure does not diminish when you share it. It multiplies. <laughs> Reminds me of the, um, the ad, and oh man, it is probably a 19, it has to be in the 90s. Anyone remember the packet of Tim Tams that never run out with Kate Planchette when she was about 20? Remember that one? Kinds of reminds me of the, the packet of Tim Tams that never runs out. 
It doesn't matter how many people you share a never-ending pack of Tim Tams with, it never runs out. That's the point. So we'll have two more of those. That's how the ad goes around. <laughs> it's like this. The joy is only multiplied the more people you share it with. And so it is with the gospel of Christ. Jesus really is the gift that keeps on giving. He really is the treasure at the center of life and death that is inexhaustible. And Paul is so convinced and so contented not just to enjoy but to share this treasure that he'll happily do it by life or by death. It's a remarkable way of thinking, isn't it? It's so alien to so many of us, I fear. And of course, now the question becomes, how about you? Where is, where is your treasure? Think about what is your life's goal or ambition? What is it that you hold most near and dear? And then let me ask this question. Will it spoil, perish, rust or fade? Because by nature, every treasure that you can name, every earthly treasure will spoil, perish, rust or fade. And even then, if it's somehow still... Uh, outlives you there's no luggage racks on a hearse there's no pockets in a shroud you can't take it with you the only treasure that doesn't spoil perish rust or fade the only treasure worth keeping is Jesus not the means to an end but the end in himself what Christianity is all about and what the gospel is all about is offering that treasure Jesus, known and knowing him and being known by him, so much so that whatever season of life you're in, whether it be good, bad or ugly, whether it be confusing, and let's be honest, I know for a fact there are lots of people here who are in different seasons of life. The treasure of Jesus is to be content in knowing that Christ is yours and you are his, so much so that whatever may come, possessions or lack thereof, status or lack of it, circumstances be pleasurable or painful. Jesus' gift to his people is a supernatural ability not to just accept these, but to remain convinced of the unspoiling joy that is yours in him even through these. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Friends, let's pray and ask that God would indeed help us to know this more personally, to share this more relationally to God's glory. And if that's something that's new or, or different or something you want to ask about more, please come and talk to me afterwards or come and talk to one of the Christians uh, here, someone that maybe you came with. If you want to see what does it mean to actually, or how do I, how do I get this treasure of Christ? Don't, don't leave home without it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word we thank you that in christ he is the treasure worth pursuing that through him and because of him that even death now can have such a remarkable different meaning and significance no longer something to be feared no longer something to be um, afraid of at all but because of the death of death and the death of christ something that we can even embrace and say gain because Christ is ours and we are his. Father, we pray that many people would come to know that truth and that treasure in Jesus here in Wagga. We pray that no one would leave here today without knowing it personally for themselves.
and that contentment in Christ and because of Christ would be ours for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we get to pray. Amen.